0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Dry, 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 dry. Two weeks from the official start of winter and Colorado's had little snow. Coming up, a state climatologist adds some context. Then the future of abortion rights is in question, with the Mississippi case the Supreme Court's now deciding. It may very well fall to states to protect or restrict abortion access, How might that play out in Colorado? We'll ask our public affairs team. Later, a different Supreme Court case from 1944, protecting a church from having its beliefs questioned by the government. History that sits in the form of a garage right
1: off a Colorado highway. This garage didn't make sense to me because it was a big garage with no gas pumps.
2: Thank you to everyone who made a gift to CPR yesterday on Giving Tuesday. On a day of global giving, you helped make an impact right here in Colorado. CPR's music programming and in-depth fact-based news coverage is a lifeline for many. You make it possible through your support. Thank you.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The fall has been bone dry, and everyone from skiers to water managers wonder what winter in Colorado might bring. This week's forecast offers a glimmer of hope. Assistant state climatologist Becky Bollinger is back with some context. Hi, Becky.
3: Good morning. How
0: are you? I'm doing okay. Looking forward to what you might tell us about the forecast. There were reports Friday, maybe you heard, that Hawaii was under a blizzard warning. Officials saying that more snow has fallen in the Aloha State this season than in Colorado. Is that a perfect encapsulation of what's going on with our weather?
3: Yeah, I think it's always a little bit of a, this cognitive dissonance thing when you when you hear someplace like that getting winter and, and we're not. Um, but it's uh, it's something that does happen in Hawaii. Uh, unfortunately, it also does happen here. And we just haven't been experiencing quite yet, which I understand makes everybody very nervous.
0: hmm. What does the forecast show when you woke up this morning? What did you see?
3: So I see a lot more seasonal winter-like activity happening this week. First, with the temperatures, uh, we can expect to experience uh, colder temperatures like we got when we woke up this morning. Mm -hmm. We can expect to see some more winter storm activity and especially some decent accumulations this week in the high country, which will be much needed.
0: When does that activity start?
3: It looks like they should get some activity through the week, uh, maybe even like tomorrow, Wednesday, but but the best chances will be uh, Thursday and into Friday when uh, they look to get a really decent shot. And overall, when you look at the seven day period, they're looking to get about two to three inches of moisture, so not not the snowfall amount but the the moisture in that, which is what we're really uh, concerned with.
0: Mm, and why are we concerned with that? Put that into context.
3: Well, when we're talking about snowfall, we always refer to snowpack because snowpack tells us about the amount of water that's in the snow. And that's going to be super critical for our water supplies. And it's basically our savings account building up over the winter uh, that we're waiting to give us a payout in the spring. So the better that snowpack is, the more water there is in that snow, uh, the more runoff and water supplies we will get in the spring.
0: I often like to think of the snowpack as one of our largest reservoirs. You know, there's Dillon Reservoir. And then there's the natural reservoir of the snowpack. Meanwhile, along the Front Range, yes, it's true we had a plummet in temperatures, but I think it's going to be like 60 degrees on the Front Range by Wednesday. What's the moisture and the temperature picture uh, in the metro areas?
3: Yeah, so we are also looking at getting in on some of that moisture, and we just won't be getting as much uh, as the mountains, but I expect that we should get something also in that Thursday to Friday time period, so fingers crossed that still happens, but yeah, typical with Colorado, you get those you, the ridges and troughs, and so you'll have those warm, windy days uh, that Proceed, your kind of cold front passing through and and bringing that storm activity with it.
0: All right. So there is some typical activity in this. I mean, of course, we're in an arid part of the country, but uh, is it possible to help us understand kind of the uh, distinction here between weather and climate? And I'm thinking, of course, of climate change in the equation. Can you reflect on that for us?
3: Yeah, so weather is, you know, kind of what we're experiencing with the jet stream and, you know, you, you get those ridges of high pressure uh, that have been a little bit extra stubborn this uh, this season so far and have brought us these warm temperatures. And then you have these troughs come through and hopefully bringing some moisture with them. And what we've had this fall and into winter is, uh, unfortunately, a lot of those troughs just haven't really been digging deep enough uh, into the state to to give us uh, benefit. And so while we've been seeing a lot of moisture out there on the Pacific Northwest with these atmospheric rivers they've been talking about, that hasn't really translated to uh, a lot of moisture benefit for us. And um, part of that is weather and and climate variability. And then when you take a step back and, and look at climate change, we are seeing that it is more likely for us to have uh, more, a greater number of, of these warm anomaly days versus cold anomaly days. So, while we will still get these winter storm patterns and we will still get snow and cold, uh, we are just getting an, an increasing frequency of, of these warm anomalies as well.
0: If I recall, last spring we had two unusually big snowstorms in close succession. So, is part of Uh, climate change as well, the possibility of more extreme snowstorms. I mean, we're talking about extreme dry, extreme warm, but uh, might this be reflected sort of further down the spectrum?
3: Yeah, it's a question that uh, climatologists, climate scientists are looking at, and it's not exactly clear yet. So we do know that typically with climate change, there is an increasing Uh, frequency of certain extreme events. But we haven't been able to definitively connect that to increase in frequency of cold extremes Hmm. or snow events. But we do know that those will still happen as perfectly evidenced by last year.
0: That's fascinating. Why hasn't that link been made yet?
3: You know, it's one of those where data is messy (laughs) and we do know that there are certain things that are connected to climate change uh, with the Arctic Circle and and that uh, jet stream that that goes around the Arctic Circle and everybody hears about the polar vortex. Uh, Well, when you're weakening that jet stream with climate change, it's like you're poking at a, a quickly spinning top. And when you poke at a quickly spinning top, it's going to wobble more. And those wobbles are the weakening. And that's what we are seeing with our Arctic jet stream is is more wobbles mm. um, due to climate change, which could bring us more storm activity. We know that part, but we're still having difficulty identifying it in the data further down, uh, downstream, so to speak, from the Arctic circle.
0: Fascinating. Uh, Well, if you might look into your crystal ball or your, I guess your snowball, um, are we going to have a white Christmas?
3: I would always bank on we're not going to have a white Christmas just because (laughs) it more often is not than is. (laughs) But and unfortunately, while we do have some good activity this week. Overall, the outlook is that our December is going to be warmer than average, and um, that's something that we're leaning slightly for the entire winter. So while we will have these bursts like we're having this week, um, we're probably going to have uh, more frequent times of, of that warmer than average pattern.
0: Becky, thank you so much for your time and the clear explanations of what's going on.
3: You're welcome. Thank you for having me on.
0: Becky Bollinger is an assistant state climatologist at the Colorado Climate Center. It's clear after last week's Supreme Court arguments that the ground rules for abortion in this country could soon change. Mississippi hopes the justices will invalidate Roe v. Wade entirely, leaving it up to states to set their own rules for the procedure or ban it entirely. CPR's public affairs team, Andrew Kenney and Benta Berkland. Have been looking into what all this could mean for colorado welcome to you both and there are of course a number of ways this case could go but why don't we start with the possibility indeed that the court's conservative majority decides to reverse the case that established a woman's right to an abortion andy what would happen in colorado
4: ryan like you just said that would leave a lot of the question to the states and that means that in colorado there would not be any direct legal change abortion access would continue here because of the way our state's laws are set up not a lot of restrictions on abortions here but what we could see is women coming from many other states including neighboring states where it could be banned coming here for abortion medical procedures.
0: Because their own states don't allow it, Benza.
5: Yeah, and Colorado voters have overwhelmingly upheld access to abortion in several elections, most recently voting down a 22-week abortion ban, and that was in 2020. More than a decade ago, the state also rejected the personhood amendment. And Colorado is one of the only states in the country right now that does not put any time-based restrictions on abortion.
0: So to clarify, Colorado doesn't have any bans on the books. So whatever the Supreme Court decides, it wouldn't change the policy here for now. But at the same time, uh, Andy, there isn't anything in Colorado law explicitly saying that abortion is legal here, is there?
4: Yeah, so there's no legal limits. There's no criminalization of abortion here. There's also nothing and some states do have this. There's also nothing in Colorado that says there is an explicit affirmative right to abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, for people on the ground, that doesn't practically matter again. Abortion access goes on whether or not the law says, yes, there is versus staying silent on it. But some lawmakers have said that they want to take a further step to protect abortion rights by passing a bill that like we just said explicitly affirms abortion rights says that it is a right
0: yeah. What would that bill do specifically? Because we've seen at least the contours of that.
5: Right. We haven't seen the language yet. The bill is still being drafted. But but like Andy said, the backers of the bill do want to explicitly put the right to abortion access in state law. And the measure would also go beyond abortion to enshrine access to contraception and other types of reproductive health care.
0: Why are they trying to do this, Benta, if the court ruling wouldn't, as Andy has said, really change anything materially here?
5: Democrats say if Roe v. Wade is undermined or overturned without a state law, they worry it would open the door here in Colorado for abortion opponents to introduce attempts to limit the procedure. So right now, 22 states already have laws on the books that would mostly or entirely outlaw abortion if Roe is overturned. Mm. Um, Democratic Representative Meg Froelich said she will be one of the main sponsors of Colorado's bill.
1: And I think what we're seeing now is that there are no guarantees when it comes to the courts. And certainly we have always referred to Roe as the basement, not the ceiling. And so if the basement falls out, we still need to lay a foundation that's strong.
0: I know you've been speaking with Republicans. Uh, Andy, are they preparing to fight this effort?
4: It depends on who you ask. We've heard from conservatives outside of state government who are excited by the possibility of Roe v Wade being overturned uh, and specifically thinking it opens a door for them in Colorado. But I also heard from one conservative state lawmaker, Representative Shane Sandridge, who said that given the way voters are in Colorado, there's little chance of change here.
6: You know, obviously, the, the population as a whole doesn't look at abortion like I do in Colorado. And, um, you
1: know, so I, I don't think it's really going to change anything.
5: And I haven't talked to any Republicans so far who said they would support this Democratic uh, bill to support abortion rights. I think it'll be one of those times during this upcoming session where the federal issues do come to the forefront of debate and it'll be pretty partisan.
0: We are talking about a bill to create a new law which could be repealed by a future legislature. Right, Andy? Yes, that's exactly right. Even more so
4: than we're finding a Supreme Court decision can be reversed in the future. A state law doesn't uh, have much permanence beyond who's in the legislature. So if conservatives who oppose abortion rights were to take over the legislature, they could just as easily reverse it. Um, What would have more staying power would be an amendment to the state constitution which has to be approved by 55 percent of voters at a ballot initiative, much harder to accomplish.
0: Harder to accomplish. And uh, if that would be successful, harder to repeal, you're saying. Exactly. Are you surprised to see the legislature about to take up this issue? I mean, it'll soon be an election year. And I think the assumption is that lawmakers sort of try to avoid doing anything too controversial that might alienate voters meant to.
5: Yeah, Ryan, I think that's true to some extent. But given that the Supreme Court indicated it was opening to to weakening Roe v. Wade, I'm not that surprised. Democrats have a healthy majority in the state legislature. They are heading into a tough midterm election. They could lose seats in Colorado. So this would be the time to pass a bill like this. Here's Democratic Representative Carrie Tipper of Lakewood. I think it's something that just demonstrates
3: how important state legislatures are in terms of protecting rights, in terms of expressing values.
0: Members of our public affairs team join us. Benta, Andy, I know you've spent a lot of time recently trying to read the tea leaves on what's coming next year in the legislature. The new session starts in January. I wonder what other things you have your eyes on. Uh, Andy, you want to start?
4: Sure. One thing I've been hearing a ton about is the federal money that's still to be spent. There are just hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from the various uh, stimulus and relief packages that have passed over the last couple of years. And we're starting to see details emerge of how the state would like to spend that money. Uh, One of the largest packages could be for housing, could be the biggest influx of money for housing purposes that we've seen in many years. And I'm curious to see if that does have the uh, possibility to make a real dent in the state's housing prices and housing situation. Will it be transformational or just more money?
0: Very briefly, Benta.
5: Um, I would say host of topics, education, healthcare, and also our new political dynamics since redistricting. Ah, yes. That will be something to watch out for with so many people up for reelection and running in new seats and more competitive seats.
0: Redistricting and reapportionment. Thank you so much, public affairs reporters Benta Berkland. And Andrew Kenny. And we'll be back in just a bit with a roadside revelation near your This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tis the season for the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, hosted by me, Ryan Warner, live December 8th, masked and vaxxed at the Newman Center in Denver, with performances by comedian Elliot Woolsey, jazzman Freddie Rodriguez Jr., and Naoma.
7: I was about to tell you this now.
0: Tickets at cpr.org slash holiday. Supported by First Western Trust. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The remnants of an esoteric religion lie just off the million-dollar highway between Uray and Silverton. Few motorists realize this as they drive by. A 1940s-era stone garage is the most visible leftover of a sect called the St. Germain Foundation, Members came to the San Juan Mountains in the wake of the Great Depression and in the midst of legal troubles that shape religious freedom laws to this day. History professor at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Andrew Gulliford, joins us. Hi, professor.
1: Glad to be here.
0: What was it about an old garage made of rocks uh, that led you to pull over along Highway 550?
1: Well, I drive the state uh, looking for stories and this garage didn't make sense to me because it was a big garage with no gas pumps and no signs. Mm. And I couldn't figure out what sort of history it had. And as I worked with the URA Historical Society, I learned a great deal. And then when I was there photographing at one time, I actually had a member of the I Am Foundation stop. And I learned uh, much more from him as one of the religious practitioners
0: we'll talk more about i am in a moment Uh, but essentially this story is about a religious pilgrimage Uh, you discovered that this area seven miles south of uray before that was a wannabe ski resort explain that transition
1: it was an early colorado ski resort obviously we had things going in aspen and steamboat springs but nothing really on the southwest corner of the state. And this was an attempt by some local investors to get a ski resort going. I think they were inspired because of the dollars that were being spent on the million dollar highway and upgrading it. They built a lodge and had the governor, Ralph Carr, come. And uh, they also built a little lake, a reservoir, which is very popular on Highway 550. And they served the governor trout from that reservoir and thought they were off to an auspicious beginning. But World War II happened. Everything got rationed, including fuel. And so they had nobody to come visit the ski area, and they closed it down.
0: So that is the history before this religious retreat. Tell us about the St. Germain Foundation.
1: So the St. Germain Foundation is established in the 1930s. Guy W. Ballard, hiking on Mount Shasta in Northern California, encountered the Ascended Master St. Germain. That's the origin of the I Am religious teachings. And this group, headquartered in Chicago, gained members. Uh, The 1930s was a time of great economic ferment and religious ferment. A number of fundamentalist churches come from the 1930s. Hmm. Well, so does the St. Germain Foundation. And the St. Germain Foundation then gets in trouble because their way of recruiting members and then charging for additional books and additional sort of personal classes, seminars, we would call them. One of the members says, this is not a religion. This is a money-making scheme. It's some kind of pyramid scheme, sues the St. Germain Foundation And that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. That's right. Uh, But essentially, Ballard had a vision in the California mountains. Ballard did have a vision in the California mountains, and that vision included the idea that Jesus Christ was an ascended master, as was Joan of Arc and Benjamin Franklin. And his wife, Mrs. Guy Ballard, uh, was also a master at some point. And so in the 1930s, St. Germain inspired Guy Ballard to write books titled The Unveiled Mysteries. Another one is The Magic Presence. The books communicate theosophy, so not philosophy, but theosophy. And volume three is the I Am Discourses, which are sacred scriptures and part of the ascended master teachings religion. In 1939, Guy Ballard became an ascended master.
0: Meaning he died. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, And his widow, Edna Ballard, his son Donald carried on. You mentioned this Supreme Court case. It is all of these legal wranglings that prompt Edna and Donald to leave the Chicago area and come to an out-of-the-way mining region 9,800 feet up in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado, right? Right.
1: Yes, and so many of their church members came with them and integrated well into URA and are remembered well in URA. They became teachers, they became laborers. Because of the Great Depression, everything had fallen off. So the fact that new people were coming to URA was exciting, and there they were. And so at some point, then they purchased this former ski area. And turn it into a religious retreat, I think would be a phrase we would use now. But they also began broadcasting, probably one of the highest, you know, broadcast areas in terms of where their studio was in the United States. And that was part of their mission.
0: In fact, you met Bud Thayer, who's been a member and who recalls the way the foundation transmitted its message worldwide from Ironton Park on the radio.
8: All over Europe. Australia, Canada, South America. And it was regarded as quite a miracle in the 40s because we didn't have the technology then that we have now. So the whole thing was absolutely uh, fantastic. Never had a failure the whole time. Thayer
0: also remembers a ritual that attracted outside visitors. It involved
8: musical bells. Carillons there down in the basement, which were real, not electronic. And at that time in the early 40s, They were the highest in the world in altitude of those carillons. We had about two or three towers to the north of the lodge that had loudspeakers on them. And we had a musician that would play the carillons and people came by from Uray and other towns and parked along the side of the road to listen to the carillons.
0: Now, more on this Supreme Court case I guess the Ballards were convicted of mail fraud uh, related to the reasons you spelled out. And U.S. versus Ballard becomes one of the most important religious freedom cases of the 20th century. How does a mail fraud case lead to a landmark ruling on religious freedom, Andrew?
1: Well, as a historian, it was really interesting to research that. And it has to do with how a religious group raises money, raises members, and so when a few disgruntled members complained and sued over the money they had invested, as it goes to the Supreme Court, in the Supreme Court rules in 1944 and basically says in a victory for the First Amendment that the tenets of one's religious faith could not be legally challenged. And so, so many other groups later in the 20th century profit from that critical decision in what happened in, in Western Colorado? It, it's mm. just amazing that other historians haven't picked up on this.
0: How many people consider themselves adherents today of the Saint Germain Foundation, and and how does that compare to, I don't know, these earlier times?
1: That's unclear because of their nonprofit status. Churches do not have to reveal a whole lot about their finances, about their membership, but they have. A number of places where they meet, including uh, Denver, Santa Fe, they have uh, quite a bit of property, and I presume that property then is paid for and maintained by the membership. It is a global affair. Yes.
0: Well, we mentioned the carillons, the radio equipment, and the rest of the St. Germain Foundation retreat along with those burned down in 1952 when a worker was using a blowtorch to melt
1: icicles from a roof. Uh, Did you
0: find anything strange about that fire?
1: Well, I did. Uh, Not only the whole idea of using a blowtorch to melt icicles, I think I would have just knocked them down. (laughs) But what was important was that nobody called the fire department in Ure, and these folks had developed great relationships with the citizens in Ure. And so one of the perspectives now is that perhaps there were religious materials, something, in the temple in the former ski lodge that nobody wanted found out. And so the fire burned basically everything, and the only thing left is this stone garage.
0: Hmm. But Thayer, who we heard from earlier says that miners from up the highway tried to help save the building, but the old timbers that had come from historic mines were just too dry. Thayer says the fire department just couldn't have gotten there in time to save it. What happened to the St. Germain Foundation after that fire?
1: Well, first off, I think it's important to remember that Mrs. Ballard really enjoyed being in URA, really enjoyed being at that site that normally five to 10 people lived on location, but when she came, she could bring as many as 25 assistants. To this day, the Chicago-based St. Germain Foundation has over 300 IM sanctuaries and centers. And so this was a very important time for the religion. They moved on to other places, uh, specifically Mount Shasta in California. And then the property eventually gets purchased. And what was mining claims in the 19th century is now, again, public land, part of the Grand Mesa Uncompahgre Gunnison National Forest. And there are interesting things that hikers can find. There's little root cellars. There's little almost patios. You can find, you know, little tiny camping areas, Short hand-stacked stone walls, Mm -hmm. other rock masonry architectural features that almost look like elves had done something. And it's a a beautiful spot. It's south-facing. It's warm. Uh, Most people who visit, they go to the lake. Uh, They go across the highway when, in fact, some of these historic architectural features are uh, on the north side.
0: The stone garage that still puzzles travelers, including you, did have a purpose according to Bud Thayer.
8: That was built for our big trailer truck that traveled with Mrs. Ballard around the country to back that in there and store furniture because many times we received bequests from uh, members of our religion that gave homes and properties and furniture. So it was was used and was planned to be used as a storage area, if you want to call it a staging area, for they bring the requests to that building, store them in there for a short time, and then they would send them out to our various churches throughout the world.
0: Well, Andrew Gullifer, would
8: you like to see
0: some sort of interpretive sign so travelers can learn about this history? And, and maybe there's more you'd like to see, some kind of designation.
1: I would. I think the site certainly belongs on the state, Colorado State Historical Register, possibly on the National Register because of the significance of the Supreme Court decision. Also, unfortunately, as the road was being expanded on Highway 550 in a place where Otto Mears had had his toll gate, so a really tight, tight place in the canyon, some of that rock is some of the oldest in the country. It's Vishnu Schist. It's really, really ancient, hard, black rock. And some of it was piled there at this site of the ski lodge, and that really needs to be removed. It it doesn't belong there. It should go somewhere else. And then once the site was more or less restored, um, yes, definitely interpretive Uh, signs. I think that's a very important idea.
0: Well, this has been fascinating. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing with us.
1: Ryan, thank you very much.
0: Andrew Gulliford is a history professor at Fort Lewis College. He explores and writes about the Southwest. I've tweeted his photo of that vestigial stone garage at CPR Warner. Labor movements have picked up momentum and attention all over the country in the past year. Well, now we revisit one of the most violent labor crackdowns in U.S. history, which happened here in Colorado. At the site of this event, underground secrets have come to the surface. KRCC's Shauna Lewis reports. In
7: 1914, southern Colorado coal miners were on strike to fight for safe working conditions and fair wages. On the day after their Greek Easter celebration, bullets flew through the sprawling United Mine Workers Ludlow Tent Colony. To escape the violence, four women and 11 children climbed into a hole dug in the ground beneath a tent. Then, company thugs torched the encampment. My grandmother and another woman were the only two people that walked out of that pit alive. That's Mary Elaine Petrucci from a 2014 KRCC story. She says the others suffocated in the cellar as the tent colony burned. A total of 21 people died that day. Now, a solemn granite monument stands on the windswept prairie near the mountains. Near the memorial's base, there's a heavy metal door covering concrete stairs leading into what was the cellar.
8: It's it's a sacred
7: ground to me. The UMW's Bob Butero says the Union erected the monument in 1918, and soon after, they lined the walls of the earthen pit with concrete. But after a century, the old concrete was crumbling. So this fall, a historic restoration company came in to stabilize it. A backhoe dug around the outside of the cellar to expose the exterior walls. As contractor Andy Carlson removed soil, he saw some raised lines in the concrete.
8: And we realized it was a cross that was basically formed into the concrete and was now visible probably for the first time ever since the miners walled up the place from
7: the inside. They cleaned more dirt from the concrete to reveal the shape of a shield surrounding the cross. Impressions of symbols that had apparently been carved into the original earthen walls of the cellar.
8: It just made this amazing sight to have this little
7: structure with a cross on it. It almost looked like it was a chapel of some sort. Butero stands inside the old vault walls, now encased in new concrete.
8: And as you could see, no evidence of the cross or anything on here. So that was all on the other side, and if we would have never excavated it, it would have never been exposed.
7: He says they don't know who made the symbols, or when. Archeologist Karen
5: Larkin says something else turned up too. Between the cellar and the monument, we actually found a tent stake that was still in situ, in place. And we could see the burnt ground surface where the tent above it would have burned. That tent stake would have been holding down the tent it covered the cellar, the, the death pit, where the women and children
7: were killed. Larkin curates the Ludlow Archaeological Collection at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. She says the tent stake and other Ludlow artifacts help tell a more complete story about what happened there. But Larkin says it's more than that.
5: This tent stake, even though it's not an animate object, was here and witnessed this event, right? So it's a tangible reminder of this
7: terrible event. Although Butero says the strike failed to change much in 1914, it got the nation's attention on the deadly working conditions in coal mines. Eventually, safety regulations were put in place along with fair wages.
8: All of that was what these people died for. I stand on these people's shoulders for mine and health safety.
7: The archeologists, historians, and the union photographed the symbols before enclosing it with new concrete, covering the symbols again this time forever. Shana Lewis, KRCC News.
0: The preservation of the cellar is now done. The Ludlow Massacre monument and site are expected to reopen to visitors soon. All you really need to know you learned in kindergarten, so goes the title of a popular book. But what happens when you miss out because of a pandemic? CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine spent some time at Florida Pitt Waller a pre-K through eight school in Northeast Denver. Does
8: that rhyme? Ran, Dan, thumbs up or down.
2: Kindergartners in Emily Dirk's classroom aren't too sure if ran rhymes with Dan.
8: So echo
3: me, say ran. 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 Dan. 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 Dirks
2: reminds them that rhyming words...
3: They all have the same ending sound.
2: Kindergarten is a time to focus on those crucial pre-reading skills. But first, this year, Dirks had to spend a lot of time on things like two-step directions, like...
5: Stand up, thumbs
2: up. The kids struggled with listening, processing, and then doing the task. More time than typical was spent on classroom routines and how to regulate emotions. That's meant less time for academics.
5: Everything has shifted. At the height of the pandemic... I kept telling my administration, kindergarten first are really going to have an impact.
2: At the beginning of the year, kindergartners reading tests showed half were significantly below grade level. But teachers say students are making gains much more quickly this year. Now it's only a third of those students. In first grade, results are even more dramatic. Half were in that low level when school started. Now it's only a quarter. First grade teacher Debbie Robinson says a new district reading curriculum this year was the missing link. It focuses on phonemic awareness, the sounds in spoken words, not just phonics. That's the relationship between sounds and written symbols. In addition, principal Kayla Grayson-Yazar says in August, staff took copious notes on exactly what skills each student had. The gaps have been filled incredibly quickly because of the work the teachers did. They knew exactly where to start with the students. It's been hard work. First grade teacher Robinson says at the beginning of the school year. They could not sit through five minutes of a story. Things have improved a lot since then.
5: Children are so resilient and they've acclimated.
2: It's common to see a wide range of skills in first grade. Some students here are reading fairly easily.
3: Lots of animals have tails. Some
5: animals use their
2: tails. And others are still struggling. This seven-year-old boy works one-on-one with Robinson as the other kids work on literacy on their iPads. He's having trouble making the sounds of long E. He still says eh, but soon he's rolling. Bat.
5: What's the next one? Hot.
2: Later he reads to me. His effort is supreme. His tongue is between his teeth. He blows. He's sounding out a word.
5: Fat. I just want them to love learning. I want them to love reading. I don't think that they picked up books for two years, a lot of them.
2: They just needed exposure to books. Now Robinson says most in her class are ready to work on first grade material. Back in the kindergarten class...
3: (laughs) You want to know, Being talking?
2: at home without other kids for 18 months, some kids missed out on other crucial skills like sharing, resolving conflicts, or knowing how to process emotions. Mom, oh. Kindergarten teacher Emily Dirk says the pandemic has stressed young children in many ways.
5: They might come in saying they're upset about losing a toy or someone bumping into them, but it's not necessarily, it's the trigger that finally lets them release that it That emotion and that fear and anxiety that they've been having. One more deep breath, buddy. In
2: and out. Claire Pewitt, a classroom aide, helps this young student calm down by breathing in and out. Another strategy is sending children who are having a dispute.
5: Did you talk to April? Okay, and do you still feel sad?
2: To the cozy spot, a little class library in the corner.
5: You need something to feel better? A
2: boy asks a girl this after a tiff. She nods and gets a hug. These kids seem to nurture one another a lot, Creating a safe, loving environment where the students care for one another has been a major goal of Dirk's and of Principal Kayla Grayson-Yazar. Oh
5: my God, somebody, are you kidding me? No. She
2: must hug a hundred people a day. School Dean Candice Walker says that focus on creating a community of love has helped kids get back on track. We tell parents we love our kids. So many of us, we get that from our principal because she says, it. you know I love you. <laughs> Counselor Jessica Pistone. We're back in those routines. Our students are rising to the expectations that we have. I think we're, we're getting there. We're getting back to normal.
0: I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. This is a big month for Santa Claus safely delivering presents during an ongoing pandemic. Where allowed, Santa's also busy hearing children's wishes at shopping malls and Christmas displays. It's often serious business, as Denver photographer Ron Cooper learned. His book, We Are Santa, profiles 50 different Saint Nicks from all over the country. We spoke last December. Ron, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning, Ryan. So 50 Santas in this book... Can you say if any of them are the actual big guy?
6: Well, he is in the book, but I'm not at liberty to tell you which one he is.
0: (laughs) You know, each of these 50 has a unique look. There's a pirate Santa, a military camouflage Santa, beach vacation Santa. Uh, We also get to see how they look in non-Santa attire. Why did you want to show that juxtaposition
6: Well, I've always been interested in people who have unique passions and who really follow those passions. And these men who portray Santa Claus are truly passionate about what they do. And I had an interest in understanding whether when they showed up at the studio in street clothes, they looked like Santa or not. And so the the concept here was to have them. And in, in fact, I photographed over 100 Santas around the country, Ryan, and I asked them to come to the studio in street clothes, much as you would see them at Starbucks or at a bank or in a grocery store, and to bring with them their Santa suit. And so I first photographed them in a black and white portrait in their regular everyday selves, non-Santa, before Santa look. And then I asked them to change into their favorite Santa suit. And by the way, many of them brought two or three different Santa suits to our photo shoot. And it was fascinating because as I met these people, I knew they were Santa. And of course, you can see the twinkle in the eye, the full beard, the big belly. Many of these gentlemen look like Santa, whether they're wearing red and uh, dressed as Santa or not.
0: Now, you said a gentleman, but I want to point out uh, someone like Susan Mesco of Lafayette, Colorado, who is also Santa. And uh, she noticed when she would see. Male Santas on the job, uh, quoting from your book, that these Santas were cranky. The children were crying. The moms were upset. It was just horrid. I thought there had to be a better way. So she she took on the Santa mantle. It's not just men.
6: No, it isn't. She is Mrs. Claus. But what makes Susan genuinely unique is that some thirty plus years ago, uh, she started a company and is one of the largest Santa Claus trainers in the country and also one of the largest agents for Santa Claus in the country. In fact, it was Susan who was able to introduce me to many of these Santas around the country.
0: Yeah, she's the founder of the professional Santa Claus school. I love that Santas have agents. And many of the Santas in your book attended you know, a school like this, including Santa K.J. Braithwaite in Colorado Springs. He went to Santa school in Denver has an interesting story about what he did after graduation. What's that story?
6: He is a Santa through and through. And one of the interesting aspects of his background is that he had a all Santa Claus wedding. Uh, In fact, he and his (laughs) wife uh, got their marriage license at a courthouse in 2015, the day before he attended Susan's professional Santa Claus school. And then they had an all Santa Claus ceremony and wedding. So This is a guy who embodies Santa in every aspect of his life.
0: At these schools, Santas not only learn grooming techniques and, you know, the right kind of ho-ho-ho, but they also learn something called the third list. What is the third list?
6: Well, as you can imagine, Santas receive a tremendous amount of questions from children, and a lot of them are very routine. Uh, They're requests for a particular toy, or uh, did they enjoy the cookies that we left for you? But... Santa's also received some very serious questions and requests from children uh, that are in fact, very difficult for Santa's to either meet or respond to. Questions like, can you make my parents get back together? Can you make my dad stop hitting my mom? Can you cure my grandmother's cancer? And one of the things that is taught in Santa school is how to respond to these difficult questions because Santa never wants to make a promise That cannot be kept. So they are especially focused on providing training so that Santas can, in fact, respond appropriately to these kinds of questions.
0: Well, I think you point out that Santas, some of them, are mandatory reporters. It's true that kids tell things to Santa that actually should be told to authorities. That's right. (sighs) Santa James Knuckles of Decatur, Georgia, talks about what it's like to be a black. Santa. What stands out from your profile of him?
6: Well, Santa James is uh, one of the relatively few African-American Santas, and he tells a number of stories about instances where kids, both African-American children and white children, challenge him. How can you be Santa if, in fact, you're black? And uh, he is very philosophical in his approach to this, and he asks the kids, what color is Santa? How do you know that? And I think that historically, if you go back far enough, uh, there are certainly plenty of depictions of Santa as having dark skin, historically. And so Santa James explains to children that we don't know what color Santa Claus is, but what is really important about Santa is his spirit and his ability to convey and share the spirit of the season and to embody those qualities that are important uh, compassion, and charity, and goodwill, and those qualities are completely irrelevant to the color of one's skin, as he explains. Hmm.
0: I understand that this project, to profile Santas around the country, it came about because you started to run into Santas and Santa culture everywhere. You just, I couldn't escape it.
6: It was a funny set of uh, very serendipitous circumstances. I was in New Mexico several years ago photographing Civil War reenactors and cowboys. And at the end of that shoot, one of the subjects that I had photographed came up to me and said, hey, I have another character that I portray that I would love to show you. Do you have time for me to do that? And I agreed. He went away and came back about 15 minutes later in a gorgeous Western Santa Claus suit with a (laughs) bolo tie. Turns out that he had a side gig as a professional Santa at a shopping mall in Albuquerque. So I made his portrait, and I filed that away, and just coincidentally, a few weeks later, I came across an article in a newspaper about the C.W. Howard Santa School, another Santa educational institution, this one in Midland, Michigan, (laughs) and it was the first one that I had learned of, and I, I read up on that, and then shortly thereafter, I became aware of a Santa convention that was being held in San Diego. And I thought, wow, this is certainly coincidental, all of this Santa Claus information coming at me. (laughs) And then I learned that Susan Mesco, right here in Colorado, was one of the top Santa Claus trainers.
0: Educators, right?
6: Educators, exactly. And so I called her, and she was gracious enough to get together with me. And she explained to me a little bit about the history of Santa Claus in the United States and the work that she did. And it was at that time that I thought, wow, I'd like to meet some of these gentlemen and make their portraits. And that's what led to this project.
0: And in just the, the last minute or so, did documenting these Santas around the country change your relationship to Santa Claus? Did it make you more of a believer in the
6: magic? It makes me a believer in the commitment they have to representing and embodying the character of Santa. Many of these uh, gentlemen are very dedicated to the spirit of the season. They are in this business of being Santa Claus for the right reasons. They love the children that they have a chance to meet with. They wanna have a positive influence on them. They wanna carry forward the history and the traditions of Santa Claus. They wanna communicate goodwill and holiday spirit. And so meeting them and having a chance to photograph them was really quite inspiring.
0: Ron Cooper, thanks so much for talking with us. Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas
6: to you. Thank you, it was my pleasure, Ron. With tin horns,
0: Photographer Ron Cooper of Denver speaking with me last December. His book is We Are Santa. And that's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to a team that deserves a plate of cookies.
3: Carl Bielick, Anthony Cotton.
0: Pete Kramer.
7: Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher.
0: Nathan
4: Heffel. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes.
7: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lowe,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
7: Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Ramsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. With special thanks to Nancy Lawful and Megan Verley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.